Hi, everyone. Welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, a new podcast from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where we're breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of the NATO summit in Madrid next year. I'm your host, Rachel Elihus, Deputy Director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia Program at CSIS. This week, we're lucky enough to have on the podcast Admiral Rob Bauer, Chair of NATO's Military Committee. In our last episode, we spoke about collective defense. In this episode, we talk about the role of the military committee and dig into the future of NATO's other two core tasks, crisis management and cooperative security, both of which are likely to be impacted by NATO's withdrawal from Afghanistan and the return of collective defense as NATO's top priority. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Well, welcome everyone to our third episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. And I'm really happy today to welcome Admiral Rob Bauer, who's chair of NATO's military committee. That makes him the senior most military officer at NATO, as well as an advisor to both the secretary general and the NAC. Admiral Bauer, part of the goal of our podcast here is to make NATO a bit more accessible uh, to our listeners and a wider audience. Can you tell us a bit about your job as chair of the military committee and maybe a little bit about the role of the committee in the NATO organizational structure? Yeah, uh, Rachel, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a very good opportunity. Uh, first of all, I think if you look at the structure of NATO, it is a, a political and a military organization. So on the political side, you have the North Atlantic Council that is the decision-making body. And on the other side, you have the military committee. It is the uh, oldest permanent body uh, after the North Atlantic Council in NATO. The primary uh, reason why we have a military committee is that for all the policy that makes its way to the different levels of decision-making, because normally it will be ambassadors at the table, but it can also be ministers of defense. It can also be ministers of foreign affairs, or it can be the leaders of the nations that form the North Atlantic Council. So that's where the decisions are being made. In order to make proper decisions on the things you want to achieve, it is necessary in the military organizations with armed forces to make the people that take the decisions understand whether things are feasible, whether it is possible what they want to achieve. And that's what the military advice is about. And the military committee provides that military advice to the North Atlantic Council. That is our prime prime reason for existence, I would say. The second reason what we do is uh, that we give direction to the two strategic commanders, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe. He is the one in charge of all the operations and missions of the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, he resides in, in Belgium, in Mons, where he has his headquarters. And then there is the Supreme Allied Commander Transformation. And he uh, basically is the one that looks to the future and makes sure that uh, we remain relevant and ready for all contingencies. Uh, so uh, he looks at innovation, for example, for new developments in technology, in how we fight a war, uh, the new domains like space and cyber, how we can be uh, effective there. So, and he resides in Norfolk, Virginia, in the, in the United States. And uh, I am the chair of uh, the military committee. I was the chief of defense of the Netherlands. I was chosen by the 30 chiefs of defense into this position. Uh, and then I uh, uh, was relieved in the Netherlands 
because this is a full-time job. And the military committee knows basically two forms. You have the chiefs of defense that can convene as the military committee. We do that three times a year. And then you have uh, their military representatives who reside in Brussels. And then we convene as the military committee in permanent session. So for three times in the year, we, we convene with the chiefs of defense and uh, talk about the things that uh, the highest military leaders in NATO need to talk about. And for the more regular decisions in the normal process, we talk with, uh, I chair the military committee with the permanent uh, uh, military representatives. Thank you. And especially for that reminder that the military committee is a go-between, not only between the political and military sides of NATO, but also those individual members and NATO as a multinational organization. Both of those are, are really important to reaching that consensus that enables action. Could you give us an idea of what are some of the main issues that the military committee is providing guidance on, particularly ahead of, of the Madrid summit in July? I think it's good to understand that uh, everything we do in uh, the NATO headquarters, when it comes to new policy, is related to the next summit. So uh, that is in Madrid in June 2022. And basically what we then do as an organization, both on the civilian and military side, is plan backwards from that leaders summit to the point where we have to start talking about things uh, through the foreign minister, the, 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 the North Atlantic Councils with the foreign ministers, then the North Atlantic Council before that with the defense ministers. And that happens twice before the summit. And then you have all the North Atlantic Councils with the permanent representatives, the ambassadors, and we have the different military committees. And all is done in order to make sure that we have the deliverables uh, when the uh, when the leaders convene in Madrid. So everybody's focused on, on that. Next to that, of course, you have the developments with regard to the missions and the operations, which require our attention if and when necessary. So those are the two things that drive our work on a daily basis. Looking at the first sort of stream of information, that is about the future of NATO. That is related to NATO 2030. That is about the change that we now see uh, from uh, 25 years of crisis uh, response operations, crisis management operations like in Afghanistan and in Iraq, where time was basically on our side. We decided when to participate in that uh, operation. We decided for how long we were going to participate and we decided with which troops we uh, were going to do that. So time was on our side uh, and in a consensus driven organization like NATO, where all have agreed to, uh, to have a decision, that was of course uh, nice to have, that time is on, on our side. So we were not always pressured by circumstances, so to say. But if you look at the fall of Kabul, for example, uh, in, uh, in, in August, that is a good example where time was not on our side and suddenly the situation drove us to take a decision on the evacuation of, uh, of our uh, troops, remaining troops and uh, all the uh, people from the 30 allies and a number of uh, Afghans and partner uh, nations. So then you are forced to do things. And uh, so we need to look at that with the behavior of Russia. We now see that uh, uh, we are not always uh, the ones that make the decisions based on our choices, but sometimes we, we have to react 
and to respond to what the other side is doing. So more and more we are now looking at collective defense. So I think that is a very important topic to change not only what that means for the military, but also for our investments and for how we organize ourselves. So that is a very important topic and route the uh, summit. Can you also tell us about the deliverables that stemmed from the 2019 NATO military strategy? There were two, two sort of work streams. One was through the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and it was uh, about how we operate. That was about the deterrence and defense of the Euro-Atlantic area. Basically, uh, of course, we tried to prevent war. Uh, so that is about deterrence to make sure that everybody that is uh, threatening us, NATO, understands that there is a high price to be paid uh, when they do so. By deterring, you hope that war is uh, not necessary, that we prevent war by basically deterring successfully. Uh, but of course, when it comes to the point where there is a conflict, then you have to be ready and you have to be able to defend yourself against your adversaries. And that is something that we now are looking at in this uh, DDA, that's the abbreviation for the defense and deterrence in the Euro-Atlantic area. Uh, and that takes a, a lot of discussions on what is necessary, how to do it. So that, that is ongoing work. The other one is the future strand, so to say, and that is the NATO warfighting capstone concept. It looks 20 years ahead and it looks at uh, how we see the development of, uh, of deterring and defending, uh, given uh, the different uh, developments in demography, in uh, uh, technology, uh, and in, in the, the use of, uh, of weapon systems. So I think that is, those two are both important to, to remain relevant and ready for, uh, for any future conflict. And the second thing is, uh, is more the actual world, uh, not necessarily uh, related to the work strands for the summit. And, uh, and a good example of that is uh, the situation in and around Ukraine at the moment, which uh, is of course uh, something we follow very closely and makes it necessary to not only follow, but think about what are we gonna do as NATO to make sure that we deter and defend our alliance given that situation. And last but not least is uh, a change with regard to China. So uh, I, I, I'm not entirely sure uh, what it will mean for the strategic concept because it is uh, something that is a work in progress, so to say. But uh, uh, I know one thing that in uh, the domains space and cyber, we see China very close to us. Uh, geographically, they might be uh, far away, but uh, in those two uh, domains, space and cyber, uh, we actually see them uh, with us uh, continuously. And that is a challenge for, uh, for NATO. Uh, they are expanding their uh, conventional and nuclear uh, capabilities. They're expanding the nuclear arsenal in a, in a, in a worrying way. Uh, we see hypersonic missile tests that are of concern. They now have the largest Navy in the world and uh, they have the second largest defense budget in the world. So uh, there is reason to keep an eye on China, so to say, and to, to think uh, continuously on uh, what it means for NATO and our relationship with China, but also in our relationship with our partners in, in the Asia Pacific, like Australia, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, and uh, New Zealand. Uh, and they are closer to China, of course, and are 
probably uh, as a result more more concerned even than, than we are. You've highlighted that NATO has a lot on its plate, everything from Russia to China to preparing for future threats. But I wanted to go back to the idea of NATO's three core tasks of collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. And if we look back to the 2010 strategic concept, it was pretty clear that NATO's primary focus was on a crisis management operation outside of its area of responsibility, namely ISAF in Afghanistan. You spoke a little bit about Afghanistan before, but you know, as NATO tries to prepare for, for all these newer challenges and, and still manage, as you said, deterrence and defense, do you think that a similar large-scale crisis management mission could still be on the table for NATO in the future? Whether there is a change to the, to the core tasks is, uh, is for the leaders, but for now, I would say, uh, and that's my, my personal opinion, uh, and, and I think uh, many would agree that there's no reason to actually change the three core tasks. Uh, so collective defense, crisis response or crisis management and cooperative uh, security. Over time, you can see that uh, one of the tasks uh, have more attention or there's more focus on one of the tasks. And I, I think over the last 25 years, that was very much on crisis management. And as I described earlier, um, collective defense now asks more of our attention for the reasons I explained, which doesn't mean that uh, there will be no more uh, crisis management uh, operations because it very much depends on how the world develops and what the actual questions are from the international community to also NATO. But one of the things uh, why it is important to have more focus on the collective defense is uh, because it will drive our investments for the next 10 years. Uh, as I try to, to, uh, to explain to people, if you have to fight a war against a, a near peer or a peer enemy, in all domains, which is uh, maritime, land, air, space, and cyber, uh, that is a different game, so to say, than to fight the Taliban in Afghanistan, which is difficult. There was a lot of people killed and uh, injured as a result of the, that operation over the last 20 years. Don't get me wrong there. But it was not a fight against a near-peer enemy. There was no air threat in uh, Afghanistan. So it was not a multi-domain operation, what, uh, in, if you look at it like that. To be ready to be uh, for a conflict with a near-peer or peer enemy, we need to look again at our capability set. So that will drive our investment for the next decade, I would say. And you can go do grocery shopping in a Ferrari, but you cannot drive a Honda Civic on the Formula One racetrack successfully. So the changes in the capability set will better prepare us for this collective defense task, but will still allow us to operate in a crisis management operation if necessary. But the other way around, that is much more uh, difficult because we were doing operations 25 years with light forces, expeditionary. Uh, it was rotational by, uh, by nature. It was all just in time. And that is not what is sufficient for collective defense. Where time is not your friend, basically, you have to be ready all the time to, uh, to expect the unexpected. Thank you. It's important that NATO avoids losing that capacity to execute those crisis management 
missions. And I really enjoyed your analogy there. Um, I wanted to go back briefly to the situation in Ukraine. Secretary General Stoltenberg has expressed concern. He's noted what he called Russia's unusual and concentrated buildup of military forces on the border with Ukraine. And a, a number of individual countries from France to Germany to the United States have warned against further provocation. But Ukraine, of course, is not a member of NATO. It's, it's a NATO-enhanced opportunity partner. What do you think is, is NATO's role in this situation? And, and are there things the military can do to be informing those political leaders as they confront this situation? I would say that uh, as an alliance, we first and foremost will look at the consequences of, uh, of any potential conflict for uh, uh, the uh, security of the alliance itself. So first and foremost, we will look at uh, what the consequences might be of a incursion of Russia in Ukraine for the alliance. Uh, so, so that is our obligation, so to say. Of course, there are, as Ukraine is a partner uh, of NATO, we do exercises together, we are talking to one another, so there's exchange of information. I think it is important that we, uh, first and foremost, but that is political in nature primarily, is to stand by the Ukrainians and to make sure that, that we support their sovereignty, which is, is their right, of course. But uh, militarily, it is not uh, one of the allies. So the, the Article 5 is not applicable to, to Ukraine. There will be most likely a number of uh, nations and amongst them allies that will have bilateral agreements and discussions with Ukraine on uh, practical support, for example, train and advice, as was in the news, the selling of, uh, of weapon systems, uh, things like that. So that is not a, a primary task of NATO, but of course it is, it is one of the things that we see happening. But most importantly for the alliance, it is making sure that we all understand what is going on and what the, the consequences of those uh, military buildup uh, of forces near the borders of Ukraine could mean for the alliance. And maybe now turning briefly to Afghanistan, we, we, we spoke a little bit about it before and how NATO had the imperative to decide there when and with what forces it would act. Let's talk a little bit about you know the, the lessons learned, if you will. I, I'm thinking specifically about how the lessons learned from Afghanistan could be incorporated into NATO's mission in Iraq with its focus on strengthening the Iraqi security institutions and forces. Will that look broadly similar to the Resolute Support Mission in Afghanistan, or is this a different type of mission? Are there lessons we can we can pull from Afghanistan as we as NATO continues that mission? I think there is already differences. If you look at uh, what we do in Iraq, uh, we are basically advising on the institutional level, uh, whereas in uh, Afghanistan we were literally with the troops. For a considerable period of time, we went out with the troops into the missions of those troops, uh, accompanying uh, them. So that is not happening in Iraq. Uh, in Iraq, we are talking about advising the Ministry of Defense. We are in some of the uh, education institutions. So that is a that is a big difference in Afghanistan. 
we provided the uh, armed forces with materiel and we we learned them to uh, use it so so that is not happening in iraq the main difference i i would say is that uh, we remain at present in in iraq at the institutional level in our assistance so that is one uh, when it comes to the armed forces the second difference is that in afghanistan we basically went far beyond the armed forces in our tasks as as nato more and more we got involved into the the much broader nation building efforts that uh, were conducted in afghanistan over the last 20 20 years uh, so after a number of years in which the uh, task was limited by making sure that uh, uh, the security was there it changed over time and uh, the ambitions became larger and we started to participate in uh, and conducting nation-building activities, in which many other organizations were involved for a shorter or longer time, like the European Union, United Nations. Uh, there were bilateral agreements uh, between nations and, uh, and Afghanistan. But uh, it sort of, in the end, looked as if NATO was the only one to be blamed for anything that went wrong in Afghanistan. Uh, which is not fair because uh, there were many more initiatives but one of the important lessons is i think that we shouldn't have gone that far away from the security tasks that is our main business as nato and uh, should have uh, left the the nation building tasks that go beyond that uh, to other organizations well that is very challenging to be in an operation where you have you know, a set of military objectives, a set of security force assistance objectives, a set of capacity building objectives, and then to overlay even nation building objectives. So that's a, that's a very important lesson learned for the future for NATO, as well as other international organizations. And it, it kind of reminds me of NATO's third core task of, of cooperative security, which does envision bringing in other actors to assist NATO with these types of tasks like capacity building and more comprehensive security. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how NATO has approached this task of cooperative security in recent years and how they're thinking about it now with regard to this future orienting of the alliance? Yeah, I think cooperative security is is very much strengthening the other core tasks. So it is strengthening collective defense and crisis management through partnerships. And the, the partnerships is uh, the nations that are not members but are closer than nations that are not partners and um, those partners do not only bring capabilities but they bring expertise uh, sometimes very specific expertise with regard to uh, the nation the, the region we work and and they sometimes show us that there are different approaches than than the ones that we use uh, for solving problems so i think that discussion is important for learning from from one another to become more effective uh, so sometimes we derive our strengths very much from diversity uh, not necessarily always in numbers because um, nations are willing to work with nato and, and nato with them because we share values because we share interests and that is based on a mutual interest in uh, in working together and not a, a forced cooperation so i think that uh, it is very important, and it was in the last uh, summit in June this year in Brussels, that the heads of state uh, agreed that the alliance uh, should increase its dialogue and practical cooperation with existing uh, partners, including 
with uh, the European Union, but also with aspirant countries and uh, our partners in, uh, in the Asia-Pacific. I think uh, we are now looking at uh, strengthening the ties and, and increasing uh, the number of nations and areas uh, we work and cooperate with, uh, including Africa, Asia and Latin America. Because um, if you operate in a, in a dangerous and competitive world, it is very important to have uh, partners and to have understanding of what is going on in the world, especially as some of the challenges that we face here uh, are being faced by them as well, like challenges in space, challenges in cyber, the technological revolution sometimes uh, in, in weapon systems and capabilities. So we need each other to understand things better and to find solutions uh, for, for the problems and issues. Maybe one final question. So speaking of partners, yesterday we hosted uh, the, the chairman of the EU military staff, Vice Admiral Blajon, and he spoke a lot about the close cooperation between NATO and the European Union. How closely uh, is the military committee working with its EU military counterparts these days? We meet regularly. I think we can do more than we are doing uh, at the moment. Uh, there is very practical cooperation, of course, in terms of the mission Eufor Altea in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, where the EU is in the lead and NATO is, uh, is supporting them. That is a very practical way of cooperation between NATO, uh, even on the ground. I think there is uh, a lot of uh, cooperation, uh, like in Kosovo, uh, where uh, 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 more than a month ago there was this situation at the northern border. It was the EU that uh, helped to uh, negotiate a deal, but at the same time, K4, the NATO mission in Kosovo, uh, was uh, of assistance to make sure that the security was there and uh, and things didn't get, get out of hand. So there's uh, a number of examples where NATO and EU are working together, sometimes on a case-by-case -case basis, some, sometimes on a more regular and more plant uh, way. And I think there are more opportunities, especially when it comes to basically helping each other in uh, in each other's strengths. So the EU is, uh, the strength of the EU is is lying in, in things like the regulations, in border control, in economic affairs, like when it comes to sanctions. Uh, so on the political level, I think the cooperation between NATO and EU with regard to the Belarus case is another example where the sanctions of the European Union uh, very much helped to uh, reduce the number of people that could be transported by airline companies that were transporting uh, refugees, migrants from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria to Belarus and then in Belarus to the borders of Poland, um, uh, Latvia and, and Lithu uh, Lithuania. And NATO, of course, was looking at uh, how we could assist the Baltic states and uh, Poland with regard to uh, to this mi migration crisis, if uh, if at all necessary. Everybody understands that we should and and will work together, and we will look for new ways, as uh, the, the leaders have basically agreed that we uh, that we continuously have to look for opportunities to work more close closely together. Well, Admiral, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, that was a really impressive overview of the role of the military committee in assisting political leaders and, and bringing the views of nations into NATO, 
but also a really impressive overview of all the challenges that are currently on your plate in making sure that NATO can address the challenges today, but also prepare for all of those new challenges coming down the pipeline. So thank you so much for your time. That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you again to Admiral Bauer for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, to my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on the project, and to our editor, Alana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please consider checking out our page on the CSIS website, subscribing to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leaving us a rating and review. See you next time.